From the Preservation Maryland studios in the historic podcast district of Baltimore, this is PreserveCast. Walt Whitman once wrote, Future years will never know the seething hell and the black infernal background of countless minor scenes and interiors of the secession war, and it is best they should not. The real war will never get in the books. Although the painful, real stories of the Civil War and its grisly impacts may not have been accurately captured by authors, today's guest, Jake Wynn, the Director of Interpretation at the National Museum of Civil War Medicine, is dedicated to telling those stories and highlighting the grave sacrifices and incredible compassion displayed during that era. As we confront a medical crisis in our own time, we sat down with Jake to learn about epidemics, disease, and health during the Civil War and what lessons there might be there for our own time. Before we start this week's episode, I really want to thank you for listening, and I want to ask for your help. PreserveCast is powered by Preservation Maryland, a nonprofit organization that depends on member contributions to fund its work. This podcast receives no government support and currently has no major funder support. Its budget is entirely dependent on listener contributions. I'm hoping you'll consider making a quick gift to help support this podcast, which is bringing important preservation stories to thousands of listeners around the country. Think of us as your preservation Netflix. Any amount helps, and you can make a quick online donation by going to preservecast.org and clicking the Donate Now button in the upper right-hand corner. We'd greatly appreciate it. Now, let's get preserving. Jake Wynn is the Director of Interpretation at the National Museum of Civil War Medicine and the Clara Barton Missing Soldiers Office Museum. He's a 2015 graduate of Hood College in Frederick, Maryland, and he writes independently about Pennsylvania history at Winning History and the Pennsylvania in the Civil War blog. Jake, it's a pleasure to have you with us here today on PreserveCast. And you, I have to say, pretty exciting, are our first return guest to PreserveCast. So you joined us all the way back on episode 12. And I'm sure that all loyal listeners of PreserveCast remember uh, that episode uh, and your answers very fondly. Um, so we can dispense with the normal questions and, and really dive into the subject today where we want to talk about the Civil War, health, um, and medicine. So it's it's great to have you with us here today, Jake. Thank you so much for having me back on, Nick. I, I too, remember fondly our, our first interview and uh, I'm really looking forward to, uh, to talking to you again. So... You know, when a lot of people think about the Civil War and casualties and losses, I mean, we're talking about hundreds of thousands of people lost over the course of the Civil War. We think bullets, bayonets. But what's the reality? Um, As the director of interpretation at the National Museum of Civil War Medicine, um, what's the actual reality of how people died in the Civil War? Yeah, so there is definitely a kind of some myths associated with with a lot of Civil War uh, medical care and the realities uh, of Civil War medicine. Um, One of them is that, you know, these battlefields are really the deadliest places for soldiers. Um, While Civil War battlefields were absolutely horrific, hellish, terrible places uh, with men being literally torn apart, um, amputations are going to be the most common surgeries performed in the war because of all of the, the bullets flying around. Uh, The real uh, deadly place during the war is actually the army camp Um, and these communities that are ravaged by disease, uh, whether they be army or civilian, that is actually where most of those who die during the conflict, anywhere between 
you know, estimates put between 620,000 and a million people die during the Civil War. Two-thirds of them die not of being struck by bullets, but by disease, diseases like typhoid fever, uh, smallpox, dysentery. Uh, they ravage these uh, these communities at, at the time of war. And, and that's really the lasting legacy of Civil War medicine is that, you know, the diseases that ravaged America at that time and their medical understanding at the time didn't really, um, you know, didn't really have many solutions for those problems. So is and is that why there's so many deaths from disease is that they just there is no germ theory so they just kind of let it go or is it just a lack of hy- hygiene like what makes the army camp so dangerous a little bit of all of that. Um, so there's a lack of understanding, a lack of medical knowledge at the time um, about what caused disease. There's some theories that were beginning to change the idea of miasmas, miasmas, um, the, the idea of bad air, um, you know, that foul smells could have a... Um, you know, could be resulting in in the spread of disease. So they are having an understanding that it seems like certain environments may be more likely to spread disease, think like swamps, um, if there's sewage in the area. Um, They did have an understanding that that could have something to do with the prevalence of disease, but there was very little that they could do to treat disease because there was still at the time a fundamental lack of understanding about what caused uh, disease. Uh, But the other side of it is the, the sanitation aspect. Um, what happens when you get large numbers of people together living in unhygienic uh, environments, um, you know, with poor sanitation, uh, with, with tainted water sources. Um, and, you know, if you have a 100,000-man army relying on, you know, a few water sources for water and also are going to have to, you know, go to the bathroom somewhere, that's going to result in, in the spread of, of many of these diseases that ravage these camps. And this isn't just a problem for, for those living in the 1860s. I mean, you look at conflict zones around the world today uh, in the 21st century, and you'll see some of these same diseases. You'll see things like typhoid. Um, you'll see things like dysentery, diarrhea. You'll see, see things like cholera even spreading in, in the 21st century in these kind of environments. And so that's a big challenge that healthcare providers faced in the 1860s. It was a true healthcare crisis because there was so many people that needed care and so little infrastructure to actually help them. And and just out of curiosity, were there vaccines? Was there vaccinations going on in the army? Yeah, so there there are vaccines um, that were uh, you know around at the time of the 1860s. Uh, most uh, famously, of course, it's smallpox, uh, which was the most feared, um, uh, arguably the most feared disease um, between the Union and Confederate armies during the war, just because they understood how quickly it could spread through a crowded place like an army camp and the damage that it could do. Um, but Smallpox was one of those diseases that was a little bit better understood, um, and they understood, too, uh, medical pr- practitioners at the time knew that you could vaccinate. Um, that goes back to the 18th century in America. Uh, and so they, they were vaccinating soldiers um, during, during the war against smallpox. So that's one of the rare diseases that there actually was some measures that they could take uh, to mitigate some of the deadly consequences of a disease like smallpox. Yeah, and I mean, speaking of diseases, and and obviously we're living through a, a pretty incredible time right now with a really aggressive pandemic, coronavirus, COVID nineteen. You know, you've talked about the specific things that that happened during the war. Were there any major outbreaks of disease during the war? 
you know, on the level of what we're dealing with now, um, whether they be in armies and cities, um, did Civil War Americans have to deal with something similar to this? So nothing on the global scale of what we're experiencing right now. Um, during the Civil War, many of, there, were, there were many epidemics of diseases. Um, many of them were fairly isolated to, to individual communities, um, especially communities ravaged by war, um, whether there was um, destruction of, of pre-existing infrastructure or infrastructure was just overwhelmed. Uh, so you do see localized outbreaks. So you see things like typhoid fever spread in the city of Washington in the first winter of the war. Um, that spread from the army camps uh, into Washington itself um, and results in the death of, of the son of the United States president. Um, so you see that happening, um, yellow fever um, epidemics along the coast of the Carolinas in 1862. Um, that happens um, and causes a refugee crisis as people flee the cities um, along the Carolina coast and head to the interior of the Carolinas. Uh, you see outbreaks of, of smallpox amongst communities that were not inoculated against it. Um, most soldiers, many soldiers experienced uh, inoculation um, against smallpox, but populations of refugees, specifically black refugees coming, um, escaping from slavery um, and into union lines were put into crowded camps with very little done to prevent the spread of smallpox. And so you see outbreaks of, of smallpox in those communities and then they ravage those uh, refugee communities. Um, but there's nothing that is no outbreak of disease, no pandemic um, that comes, that occurs during the Civil War years. There's not a major outbreak of influenza or, or of any other disease um, that spreads across the world and goes through um, goes through America and at the time that, of the Civil War. Isn't that sort of a function of the fact that you just couldn't travel that quick? So the idea that something breaks out in China it's unlikely to end up in Washington DC in 3 months because the just the the scope of travel in the world then was such that you might not even be able to make it from China to Washington DC in 3 months so let alone um you know sort of infect the world um the way that modern travel has allowed for that to happen I'll actually I'll push back a little bit against that because um, you know there there was a capability there was you know there's lots of talk about globalism today um, and it wasn't a globalized world even in the 1860s travels all around the world yes as you said it was slower um, but right at the end of the Civil War you do and right after the Civil War ended you do see the return of one of the most notorious pandemics of the 19th century um, in 1865 and 1866 there is an outbreak of cholera that is going to spread around the world um, and cause um, untold suffering um, in, in areas around the globe, including including in isolated spots here in the United States. Um, and this actually comes on the, on, you know, there were multiple waves of cholera through the 19th century that did spread around the world. Um, one of the, the things that I think is most interesting that they learn out of the Civil War, um, and there was a, a changing in medical knowledge around cholera specifically um, in the 1850s in England. Um, many, Maybe some of your listeners are familiar with, with Dr. John Snow, not from Game of Thrones, um, but his work in, uh, in London in the 1850s um, began to understand, um, create an understanding of how cholera was spread. Um, 
But uh, in, in 1865 and 1866, a lot of the lessons learned about sanitation during the Civil War and its importance actually helped to mitigate some of the results of the 1865-66 pandemic of, of cholera. So disease could spread around the world at that, you know, at that time with, with surprising rapidity, um, considering the, the nature of transportation at the time. But those diseases could be spread. Um, it's really, um, and we're experiencing now, it's, it's really a matter of luck and of circumstance that we'll see whether or not a disease will go from being a local isolated situation to um, if the circumstances are just right and the spread and mutation happens in just the right way, you can see something spread like wildfire all around the world. Well, it's interesting. I mean, you don't think of the 1860s as a global world, but there's certainly, you're right, there's global trade. And I should have asked you, just so for people who are listening who are not um, uh, 19th century uh, med- medicine fanatics and historians, um, what is, maybe tell us a little bit about cholera. What is cholera? Like, what does it cause? What, what would it be like if you had cholera? Yeah, cholera is, uh, is is particularly feared, um, spread by contaminated water. Um, you know, if you think living in the 19th century and you have the rise of cities, um, you know, almost mega cities at the time, um, and there's very little infrastructure to get clean water to people. Um, sewage gets into drinking water sources, and um, cholera is a disease that will spread that way, and it gets into your gut and um, causes uh, a, a very painful very painful death, um, and it was much feared as a result. Um, and so that was a, a disease that ravaged, you know, all over the globe just because of the nature of that travel. Um, and people could carry it for a long way before succumbing to the symptoms of, of cholera. Um, and that allowed for it to, to spread um, around the world. And, and cholera is still something that is faced um, today in, in conflict zones and areas of the world, um, in failed states, um, places like Yemen, places like Syria, where you see armed conflict going on, um, the destruction of, of pre-existing infrastructure. Um, you do see outbreaks of that still happening today. We have a much better understanding of, of how to mitigate cholera, how to deal with it once it does the outbreak. So you're not going to see another uh, pandemic outbreak of, of cholera uh, today because we understand it in a way that we don't understand a new, fast-moving um, disease like COVID-19. Right. And and the other ones that you mentioned, I mean, smallpox, I think people are probably familiar with just because it, it's similar, I guess, in some ways to chicken pox. I mean, at least it's a pox in that in that sense. And then um, yellow fever, malaria, those things, those are insect-borne illnesses, which until the early 20th century still reared their head in the United States. And they're, and they're still, they still happen around the globe. They're just not as frequent. And they're, they're certainly not something we're familiar with here in the U.S. anymore. Yeah, that is one of the big challenges that 19th century, um, you know, military medical practitioners faced during the Civil War. Um, they did have some tools against malaria specifically. Um, there was an understanding of the use of quinine both as a preventative and um, in the use, uh, you know, in treatment of malaria um, did have some, some success. And so they did have access to that. They did understand the importance of that. But they didn't understand how malaria and yellow fever um, how they were actually spread. They didn't necessarily make the connection to the mosquito, but they did make the connection to swampy areas um, with higher temperatures and a lot of standing water. 
they didn't make those connections. But you're right. It's not until the 20th century that they're really able to do, you know, efforts to really mitigate um, those illnesses and really tackle them. Um, so much so that we don't really see them anymore in the United States, um, which is interesting, too. Um, that's in the last, um, as we're dealing with the pandemic now, the last kind of disease scare in the United States was around Zika, um, which was an insect, uh, insect. Um, based, uh, based disease. So, um, even, even as we, you know, crush some diseases, um, new ones, um, can, can pop up. So that's important for us to, to, to recognize. Right. And, and malaria, as you were saying, is similar. And, and if I remember correctly, was there not a, there was a big malaria issue in 1862 in the Peninsula Campaign as the Union Army is approaching Richmond. And I think several, if I remember correctly, and, I, and this I'm kind of going back into my foggy recesses here, but I think that there were several generals who even came down with malaria at that point, trying to kind of slog their way through the swamps on the peninsula in, in, um, of the York and the James. Yeah, and you would see that. And there's, there's, um, you know, interesting scholarship about you know some of the diseases that were being spread um, during that particular campaign. Um, my favorite is, uh, you know, what exactly is Chickahominy fever, um, which is named for one of the rivers that that the Union Army was operating on um, in their in their attacks towards uh, towards Richmond in the spring of '62. Um, yeah, I mean that was a real danger. Malaria was something that is faced not only by soldiers but also by civilians too. Washington um, was one of those renowned places um, for for the spread of malaria, just because of the nature of kind of how wa- the water moves in and around the city of Washington. There's some uh, more marshy areas that were uh, perfect breeding grounds for mosquitoes, and so malaria does become an issue in the city of Washington, as it does in anywhere that the armies operate in swampy or marshy areas um, throughout the war zone. So the the National Museum of Civil War Medicine, your employer, gives a lot of intention in its interpretation to medical advances. I mean, I think a lot of people think of the Civil War and they think, oh, barbaric. And and if you if you visit the museum in Frederick, Maryland, you get a real sense that, um, you know, there was there was some, you know, I guess some barbarism, but there was quite a bit of compassion and, and a lot of really good medicine being practiced as well. And that plans that were established during the war um, we we feel their impact to this day um, in terms of uh, the way the, the military deals with um, disease and wounds and casualties. So are there are you seeing anything in our pandemic response which you can kind of trace back to uh, Civil War roots? Yeah, there, there are many, uh, many examples of this. I think one is, um, the first one is, is kind of more controversial, um, and that would be kind of the lack of preparedness, um, you know. <laughs> at the, at the, <laughs> Not exactly a, a, a proud legacy of the Civil War, but yes, keep going about our lack of preparedness. Yeah, so lack of preparedness is like, you know, this this was, we we knew this was coming, um, pandemic, uh, and it was only a matter of time, and, and you can trace that back, um, you know, decades, that, that there was a knowledge uh, in, the, in the health community, um, those that were, you know, making policy around public health, um, and, and there was an understanding that there was something like this that was going to happen, and yet we see that there was a very slow response once the, the pandemic arrived on our shores 
years to actually deal with the consequences of, of what this disease could do. And there was an evolution in an understanding, you know, the, the fatality rate of, of COVID-19, um, you know, the consequences of this global spread of a, of a pandemic disease, um, which we haven't seen in, you know, to this level in a century. Um, but going back to the Civil War, you know, the first year of the conflict for, for both Union and Confederate forces, there is a lack of understanding of how quickly this war would escalate. Um, and there's a, there's the battles continue to become far deadlier, and yet the medical departments of both armies kind of fail to live up to the, the to the need that was there. They fail to grow. They fail to um, you know to to adapt and evolve to the battlefield situation that they were facing. And as a result, casualty numbers um, and those who die. Um, you know, having been wounded, um, are left out on the battlefield for days. Um, there's no organization of ambulance systems. There's, there's no word, very little organization of field hospitals. The medical practitioners themselves are operating in the dark. Many had never seen, uh, gunshot wounds before, had never organized an army camp. And so in the first year of the Civil War, you see that lack of preparation, that lack of preparedness, and that lack of ability to evolve to the situation that the army faced and that the two sides faced in the Civil War from a medical perspective leads to a lot of, of suffering and death that I don't want to say, you know, was was uh, totally preventable, but, you know, they could have mitigated some of those losses. They could have cut down on some of the losses. Yeah. And I think and there are some lessons there. Well, for, I was just going to say, today. too, I mean, sort of the unpreparedness. I, I hate to say it, but that's almost like a hallmark of American history. We don't ever really seem to be prepared. I mean, we, we, we sort of throw ourselves into it once it happens. But, I mean, you look at, like, the run-up to World War II. We, didn't, we weren't really prepared. The United States Army was, you know, a shadow of what it needed to be. You know, I mean, it seems like every crisis that we get ourselves into, because the nation is so forward and future-facing, that we don't really want to plan for you know, the worst case scenario, it seems like. And and that, and we get ourselves into these things over and over again. It's almost like it repeats itself. Uh, if only people would study history. Yeah, if, if they would, they would see some of these some of these patterns. And, and I can transition now to, uh, to, a, to a more hopeful message. And that is that those adaptations made during the Civil War uh, do plant the seeds of modern emergency medicine as we know it today. And so you see for the first time in the United States, the use of organized ambulance systems, um, basically creating the same systems that we use today that, you know, uh, first aid on the battlefield or at the scene of an accident or um, with in case of disease, you know, um, a, a figuring out what's with telemedicine, figuring out what patients are suffering, um, and then making the decision um, going back through, you know, to field dressing patients, first aid, um, to field hospitals, um, emergency hospitals established on the battlefield, um, and having at each step in that system people who are there and whose responsibility and whose job it is to um, assess the patient, um, to look at their injuries, and then make the decision about the first decisions about what care that kind of uh, injury or wound might require before sending them on to the next station in the system. Um, and so those fundamentals of emergency medicine that we sort of take for granted today were all established because of the chaos of the Civil War. And so what we're experiencing right now and, and looking at the situations in in some of those areas, uh, the so-called hotspots, 
you're seeing a lot of this evolution and, and adaptation is being required. You're seeing the establishment of emergency field hospitals in Central Park. Uh, you're seeing the, um, the, the the attachment of extra beds to pre-existing medical facilities uh, to take on a surge of patients. Um, you're seeing you know decisions made, um, unfortunately, triage decisions being made about who gets a ventilator, who doesn't get a ventilator, trying to mitigate those losses. These are things that we learned out of the Civil War for the first time, and we're seeing them being adapted again. And, and ultimately, what that means is, you know, we are adapting to the situation. There's the preparedness issue that I think we'll look back upon and, and try to study and understand what mistakes were made. But right now, as we're in the heat of the crisis, uh, we are very much in the same place that the war doctors were in the 18, in 1862 and 1863, is adapting to the situation that they're facing on the battlefield and trying to save as many lives as we can. And we can derive a lot of lessons from that and, and uh, the importance of, of leadership, the importance of, um, you know, putting aside, um, you know, partisan uh, bickering and, and partisan wrangling uh, for the better for the better good, and to pool our resources together um, and to you know face down this challenge that we have in some of these hotspots um, to try to to mitigate those losses, to try to prevent um, you know as, as they're saying about this flatten the curve. We want to flatten the curve. That's what we're trying to do today. Um, and we can look back to the Civil War and, and see some of the, the inspiration for the decisions that are being made today. Um, because in some ways, we're, we're facing a very similar national challenge um, in a way that we haven't faced in, in you know, quite a long time. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, for those for those familiar with Civil War medicine or for those who aren't, um, you know, Dr. Jonathan Letterman of the uh, Army of the Potomac, you know, certainly had a big hand in a lot of what you're describing. And I know the museum goes into great detail. And, and boy, it would be interesting to, to get his take on what he's seeing right now. And uh, what what he thinks of <laughs> of of what he put in place, you know, over 150 years ago now. Um, I think, he, I think he would recognize. I think he would recognize. Um, I think he would. Steps that he was being forced to take, um, being being put in in place now. I think some of the systemics, uh, you know, the, the the systems that he helped to organize, he would he would recognize being used right now. Yeah, which is pretty 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 impressive that you know almost a hundred and fifty uh, over one hundred and fifty nearly one hundred and sixty years later, um, still feeling the impact of that work. Let's take a quick break here, and then when we come back, let's talk about masks, about the impact of the war, and uh, let's also talk about what you guys are doing at the museum to hold things together um, as we struggle through this crisis. And we'll do that right here on PreserveCast. 100 years ago in 1920, the 19th Amendment to the Constitution of the United States was signed into law and officially granted 20 million American women the right to vote. This mass expansion in voting rights was the result of generations of intense activism known as the women's suffrage movement that has had a lasting legacy on the continued fight for equality in America. In recognition of the struggles and achievements of a once disenfranchised majority, PreserveCast is honored to share remarkable stories of suffragists within each episode this year. Beyond the Ballot is supported by Preservation Maryland, Gallagher, Avilius, and Jones Attorneys at Law, and the Maryland Historical Trust. To learn more about influential women, past and present, or to donate, please visit BallotAndBeyond.org. This week on Ballot and Beyond, we'll learn about Mary Bartlett Dixon, a skilled nurse and leading suffragist from the Maryland Eastern Shore, read by Casey Roan, the primary researcher of Maryland's historic context statement on the state's suffrage legacy. 
Mary Bartlett Dixon, nurse and suffragist. Maryland's suffrage movement drew women from all corners of the state. Mary Bartlett Dixon of Easton on Maryland's Eastern Shore was a leader in the suffrage movement and in her chosen field of nursing. Dixon graduated with the 1903 class of the Johns Hopkins School of Nursing. She quickly made an impact in medicine, helping to establish the Emergency Hospital of Easton in 1906, an institution today known as the University of Maryland Shore Medical Center at Easton. Mary Bartlett Dixon connected nursing with advocacy for women's rights, writing a letter to the editor of the American Journal of Nursing in 1908 that criticized the journal's neutrality on women's suffrage. She was a leader in the Talbot County chapter of the Just Government League, one of Maryland's largest and most active suffrage organizations, wrote regularly for the Maryland Suffrage News, and edited a regular column for the Baltimore Sun entitled, What the Suffragists Are Doing. In 1913, Dixon was one of just a handful of women who met with President Woodrow Wilson shortly after his inauguration to ask him to support a constitutional amendment enfranchising women, which President Wilson chose not to do. When Wilson was re-elected in 1916, suffragists took their fight to his doorstep. In January of 1917, the National Women's Party began a daily picket of the White House, holding banners with messages such as, Mr. President, how long must women wait for their liberty? These silent sentinels were the first people to ever picket the White House. Suffragists had pioneered an enduring form of political activism. Mary Bartlett Dixon defended the silent sentinels in the face of widespread public condemnation. She wrote to the Baltimore Sun on January 24, 1917 that, the silent sentinels are not annoying the president. He realizes they are gentle reminders of his inconsistency. It is unthinkable that President Wilson can proclaim to the world his belief in the American principle of equal rights for all and continue to exclude in his great leadership equal rights for all the women of the United States. The White House pickets became even more unpopular when the U.S. entered World War I in April of 1917, after which their actions were seen as treasonous as well as simply distasteful. In the summer of 1917, police began arresting and imprisoning these protesters. Maryland women, who were in such close geographic proximity to the Capitol, played a key role in these demonstrations. Mary Bartlett Dixon joined the White House pickets and was arrested with 40 other women on November 10, 1917. Several Marylanders were imprisoned in the Occoquan workhouse. There, guards subjected the suffragists to brutal physical treatment and extended solitary confinement. When the women were denied status as political prisoners, they went on hunger strike and some were eventually violently force-fed. This widely publicized abuse helped shift public opinion in favor of the suffragists. In January of 1918, President Wilson finally felt sufficiently pressured to declare his support for a federal women's suffrage amendment. This began the process that would lead to ratification of the 19th Amendment in 1920. Mary Bartlett Dixon's persistent activism and engagement with the public through her writing helped shape the course of Maryland's suffrage movement. After ratification, she founded the Talbot County League of Women Voters and continued to engage with medical and charitable causes throughout her life.
This is Nick Redding. You're listening to PreserveCast. Today we're joined by Jake Wynn of the National Museum of Civil War Medicine. Uh, we've been talking about all things Civil War health, history, um, and um, sort of the legacy of the war and the impact we're still feeling today during this global pandemic. Um, and, you know, one of the things that we're seeing right now, Jake, uh, that I'm sure you're seeing, and maybe you even have one yourself, is that there's sort of been this homespun movement now to sew masks, and individuals all across the country are doing it. Any Civil War parallels in that? Are, are you getting any uh, Civil War feels when you see everyone doing doing this and engaging in this activity? Absolutely. Uh, this is something that I think all through our nation's history and all through human history, uh, you see us falling back on the same kinds of activities um, that are very human. Um, and we want to all do something to be to, to, to help in situations like this. And so to go back to the Civil War, yeah, absolutely. You see uh, homespun uh, efforts. Uh, you see efforts on the home front, both north and south, to give their soldiers some measure of comfort. Um, whether that means um, making them clothing, um, sewing clothing, um, sewing mittens, hats for the winter time, um, but kind of the universal is making medical equipment, making bandages, uh, making um, gowns for hospitals. Uh, you see that happening on the home front during the Civil War, uh, both by individuals um, and also by larger groups and organizations. Uh, local and state relief agencies that were established during the war, organizations that are a bit larger, like the Sanitary Commission or the Christian Commission, they're doing a lot of that same work um, that we are doing today, that people are coming together and trying to make um, you know, things like masks today, um, coming together to try to do their part, um, to, to have some impact on this large scale, um, crisis that we are all facing. People want to, to participate and want to have a, try to step in and, and have a helping hand there for, for those in need. Yeah. And it's funny because it's, it's like, it's something where you feel like you can do something physical and real in the midst of something that is so global and seems so impossible to have an impact on. It's like, well, at least I can do this. I can make a mask, you know, uh, I can roll a bandage if you're in the civil war, or I can, you know, make a, make a gown or, or socks or something like that. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think you're right. It has civil war parallels. It just has sort of human parallels. We're, we're doing what we, what we normally do. Um, so look, the, you know, the, the civil war was, at least from my perspective, I imagine probably from yours as well, was the defining moment of the 19th century, certainly for the United States. And some are now beginning to argue that this pandemic could be a defining moment for the 20th century. Maybe not the defining moment because we've got another 80 years to live through of this century, but certainly a defining moment. Um, and given that you're a historian of the Civil War, what do you hope for out of this moment? What was What's the positive that came from the Civil War? What could be the positive that comes from this? Yeah, that's a that's a really good question. Um, I, I would think that you know I, I agree with you completely. I think that the Civil War is the defining moment of the 19th century in the United States. Um, I, I think this is going to be only time will tell how much impact that our current uh, coronavirus COVID nineteen pandemic will will have both on this country and around the world. I think. All suggestions right now is where it's it's hard to say when you're living through the moment um, how impactful in the scale and the scope of history that moment will be. Right. It definitely feels like this is 
this is kind of a uh, an epic changing um, you know uh, situation that we are all facing, not only with a health crisis but also with an economic crisis that is coming um, on its fast on its heels. Um, I do think that, you know, this is going to be one of those before and after moments um, where there was life in the world before coronavirus and there's going to be life in the world after coronavirus. And I think um, that it's only going to it's going to take a long time uh, for for, you know, the, the consequences of this to play out for us to fully understand what exactly this meant um, for our nation and for the world. And that is something that those living through the 1860s would understand. Stand. Um, I think there is a great um, moment for us right now to kind of reflect on the past, to look at these moments of national struggle, um, of crisis, and see what people faced at that time um, and what living through a moment, uh, an event like the Civil War would have been like, the uncertainty that you have, the feelings of despair, the feelings of, you know, having moments of joy uh, amid this crisis. I think we now, looking back, can understand a little bit more what it was like to live through those experiences. So as a historian, that's kind of how I feel about, um, you know, living through our current moment and looking back at the past. I would say um, I've been advocating for this um, both through the museum and also um, in my public history work outside of the museum. And that is that we are living through one of these epic moments in history um, that we don't fully grasp how important it is yet, but it is important. And I've been encouraging people to uh, keep a journal, keep a diary, keep notes about what you're experiencing, what your everyday life is like, um, because that is going to be of incredible historical um, interest uh, for future historians. Yeah, absolutely. If you want to be uh, published 150 years from now, make sure uh, you keep, keep a journal just like everyone did 150 years ago, particularly in this sort of uh, ephemeral uh, digital world where everything is so fleeting. Uh, if you actually write something down, you actually uh, you may end up in a book 200 years from now. So if there are books, we don't know. We'll see. Um, <laughs> so before we go, this is always uh, enlightening. Hopefully, you you can be you can be a three-peat guest at some point, and we can talk about something else. Hopefully, not not as uh, dire as another pandemic, but we'll we'll maybe we'll have you back. Um, but before we go, tell us uh, about what the National Museum of Civil War Medicine is doing during this downturn, and how are you keeping the lights on and and still educating and making sure that uh, the museum comes out of this. Really hard, Nick. You know, it's a, it's a really difficult situation. Um, uh, I do think um, because we're a medical museum, I, I do think that there was a kind of an understanding fairly early on about what we could be facing as as the momentum. Um, of this pandemic kind of built um, at the end of January and then into February. Um, and we started to make some plans about, you know, uh, if we faced a situation like we are facing now, which was utterly unprecedented, I'll, I'll be honest, in planning for it in mid to late February, um, you know, it was a little, it felt a little kooky. I felt a little like, uh, you know, like a doomsday prepper, um, while, while getting things and thinking about what the consequences of, of the coronavirus could be. Um, but around late February, early March, we kind of came to a plan that if, for whatever reason, we were going to be forced to be closed to the public because of this public health issue, this, this crisis, um, that we would essentially one day flip the switch and go to an online museum. Um, and so we've been over the last, um, five years that I've been at the museum, we've been um, really 
really put a, a, a important focus on our social media networks and using those as educational tools, not just for, for fun, not just for updates about what's going on at the museum, but to educate. Um, and so that actually gave us a good jumping off point um, once we were... Um, you know, forced to be closed because of um, because of the, the the virus spreading in the United States, uh, we were able to essentially one day just throw the switch and start doing live streams, to start doing uh, more video content, um, and to really emphasize our social media network as a place not only to educate but also to communicate with our audiences. Um, and and we've gotten great feedback from from doing this, and also found um, you know it's not the same as admissions coming through the door, um, but have been able to continue to grow um, our membership numbers as well. We're a member-supported organization. Um, and so that's what I've been encouraging folks to do. If you like our, our content, you like what we're doing on social media, you like these efforts to have an interactive, you know, Facebook Live Q&A, you know, it's important if you can pitch in even a small donation or become a sustaining member, uh, that means a lot to us. So I'll, I'll encourage your listeners too. If Absolutely. you, you want to learn more, um, go to civilwarmed.org. Um, you can support us there. We have a membership page um, and a donate page. Uh, and you can also find all of our online educational resources. So, um, yeah, so it's it's been a it's been a weird couple of uh, couple of weeks um, coming up on a couple of months now, um, but we uh, we're we're fighting on. Fantastic, and I think you guys are doing a great job, and um, you know, really making the work that you do and the story that you tell relevant to the moment, which is the most I think a museum could hope for. So yeah, I would encourage people go to civilwarmed.org and become a member. Don't be cheap. Uh, go get on there and 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 uh, become a member and support uh, a museum that's doing good work out there. Well, Jake, it's been a pleasure to speak with you. Um, please be well, stay safe, stay healthy, um, and look forward to talking with you and seeing you in person when this uh, all comes to pass. Yeah, thank you so much, Nick, for having me back on uh, PreserveCast. I, I really enjoyed this conversation, and uh, yeah, I hope it won't take another pandemic to get me back on the podcast. Fantastic. Talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to PreserveCast. To dig deeper into this episode's show, notes, and all previous episodes, visit PreserveCast.org. You can also find us online at Facebook and Twitter at PreserveCast. This program was supported by the Historic Preservation Education Foundation. PreserveCast is produced by Preservation Maryland in Baltimore City. Thanks again for your support, and remember to keep preserving. <laughs>